I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to a new episode of Land Grant Holy Land In Conversation. My name is Matt Tamanini. On this podcast, we talk to people in and around Ohio State athletics and the sporting world at large to bring you a different insight and perspective to the teams, athletes, and university that you love. On today's episode, we are in conversation with Land Grant Holy Land icon, the man, the myth, the legend, Matt Brown. Not only is MB one of the all-time greats to ever grace the hallowed virtual halls of Land Grant Holy Land, but he is also the man behind the most intelligent and informative college football newsletter in all of the land, Extra Points. Today, Matt and I discuss Ohio State's victory over Penn State this past Saturday, what we've learned from the first two games of the season about this team that can be used to look forward to the rest of the season, how the Big Ten is handling the coronavirus pandemic, and whether or not Nebraska could be looking to leave the Big Ten sooner rather than later. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with Extra Points, Matt Brown. All right, Matt, we are now, I guess we're a little like 22 hours post uh, Ohio State beating Penn State 38 to 25. I want to start. You and I have both written articles for Land Grant Holy Land over the years in which we make our disdain for everything Penn State fairly well known. What kind of emotions do you have when Ohio State plays Penn State and then, you know, doesn't necessarily blow them out of the water, but, you know, plays a pretty solid game and handles uh, the Nittany Lions in prime time? It's to me. It- it's always a, a very satisfying win, um, particularly when Ohio State is able to, to actually <laughs> win this game by more of a touchdown. I, I was joking mm-hmm. about this during during the game. Um, Penn State's won this a couple of times, but I feel like as a, as a program against Ohio State, they are very, very good at getting blown out, but keeping the, game, the score still very close. Like, it, yeah. you know, if you looked at like the, the state of play, I guess, during that Ohio State game, and I, I think a lot of other fans would agree, Ohio State mostly had this game in control, particularly, you know, with how they played defensively in, in the first half. But, you know, you get a couple of bad breaks, you get a weird officiating thing, you have your kicker get hurt, and suddenly what was probably closer to a 20-point margin, you know, in the third quarter is an eight-point margin. I, I never looked at this and thought they might lose. And the couple of times when Penn State has won, they, they've gotten a few of those breaks. There's There really hasn't been anybody else in the league over the last five or six years and this is going to sound super arrogant, but it really is the truth. Like there hasn't been a real peer program, right? Yeah. Like the beating Michigan is always very satisfying emotionally, mm-hmm. but the way that, that that dominance has extended over the past couple of years and how they've so seldom really been competing for that, for a division championship, it's a little bit different on the field. Like Penn state is the stick that you measure yourself by on the field product and Michigan to a, to a lesser extent, a bigger deal for cultural reasons. So, you know, uh, they, I think maybe they're a little bit less hateable just because everything this particular season to me feels like it almost doesn't matter. 
and, and Penn State's missing their top two running backs and a lot of their program is in, is in sure yeah kind of disarray a little bit right now so it's it's not like okay this is a stick planting here that that the program has been vanquished but yeah it's it's fun watching a team that you don't like lose by two touchdowns. Yeah, it is always fun, especially coming a week after they lost to Indiana, which makes yeah, it. That's right. People it, forget that they did lose to Indiana. Uh, I'm telling you, nine Indiana. Uh, let's put it on the books right now. Uh, the only loss to Ohio State. I'm planting my flag there. So um, so I, I'm interested because the two weeks of Ohio State football have been really. I mean, other than the uh, the consistent Justin Fields to Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, like perfect combination like there's been a lot of things that have had some ups and downs whether that's the running game or the offensive line the defensive line even the secondary this week I'm wondering what you think we can actually take away from these first two games as where some of the new aspects of this team are the new players the new you know the back end with Kerry Combs coming back what have you been able to actually learn from these two games that's not Justin Fields is amazing and Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson are unstoppable I mean, like that's a pretty big takeaway. This is Ohio yeah. State's best wide receiver, du- like wideout duo, probably ever. Yeah, right. Justin Fields, in terms of like pure physical gifts, probably Ohio State's greatest quarterback ever. Um, has has a chance to to leave the program as one of the most celebrated players ever. Kind of capping off an absolute ridiculous decade of quarterback play from the school. It, it is always challenging, I think, to make big sweeping declarations after two data points, but. You know, given Ohio State didn't really have a spring and only sort of had a fall and everybody's kind of holding their rosters in preparation together with duct tape and balsa wood and everything like I, I, I think it is to be expected that they're not playing perfectly. And the biggest takeaway, honestly, to me is Ohio State probably played a B plus game two weeks in a row. They played against two of the four most talented teams in this conference and they kicked both their asses. And Ohio State, honestly, could probably play about a B-plus game uh, every week and win every game in the Big Ten by double digits. Um, if, you know, if, if they play a B-plus game and somebody plays you know, out of their mind over their skis, then, then it's possible Ohio State could lose. And if, they, if Ohio State plays their best possible game, then nobody in the league can touch them, um, particularly on, on offense. I was really heartened, I think, by the the emergence of of the interior of Ohio State's defensive line, yeah, um, against against Penn State, uh, and 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 you know against an offense that even they're missing a bunch of people, I, I still think is pretty decent. Um, and you look at the Ohio State just has an embarrassment of riches at wideout, and and some really good tight ends too. I, I think the only concern is about consistency in the running game from running backs, and that's partly to be expected because. Uh, run blocking and pass blocking is different and Ohio state missed on a bunch of running back recruiting targets over the last two years. And you have a group that um, I don't think right now has a top guy and maybe you don't need a top guy, right? Like you, you could potentially, um, you know, still, still get 150 yards on the ground using three or four different running backs and fields in that game. And, and maybe you'll be okay. But I, that's like the one thing that I think, I think can seem a little bit disorienting, just given what Buckeye fans are used to. Yeah, coming off of J.K. Dobbins, you know, the only running back in Ohio State history to eclipse 2,000 yards in a single season, it, it is a little jarring when you see Master Teague and or Trey Sermon kind of struggle to get three or four yards on any given play. But I agree. I don't think that we need a stud running back to have Ohio State reach the goals that they have set for themselves this season. I think that if they can just be 
enough of a balance to the passing game to keep defenses uh, honest when, and that also includes Justin Fields' threat to run as well. I think if we can just be a little bit of a complement to the passing game, that Ohio State should be able to to score at will at, at least throughout the Big Ten season. When they get to the playoffs, we'll have to to see what happens there. Um, I, I you mentioned the interior defensive line, uh, and I think the story so far for the season for me that is only tangentially on field comes from Haskell Garrett. Um, just generally, since I haven't, I don't know if I've seen you talk about this much other than the fact I know you tweeted that he's going to have to be your favorite player this year. Um, what do you think about this unbelievable story of Haskell Garrett being shot in the face, playing two months later, and really helping solidify what could have been the weakest or at least thinnest unit on Ohio State's team? It's a hell of a story. And like yeah. he, I think even before what unfortunately happened to him this offseason, like he was a likable and interesting player. He was a, you know, a big time recruit out of a, a big time program in a, in a <laughs> Bishop uh, Gorman in Vegas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him and Tate Martell. Yeah, him and Tate, him and, him and Tate Martell. And, and honestly, opening a beachhead in a part of the country where Ohio State um hasn't typically recruited very much um you know he, he hadn't played a ton and this was supposed to be his breakout year he's somebody who has has nfl potential um and then to rebound that quickly physically one like that's a miracle I'm, I'm i'm glad i'm glad that he's able to play football again at all yeah and then at this high of a level and to be a real playmaker right because the last couple of years the the real big playmakers have come on the end Ohio State has had good defensive tackles, but, you know, but honestly, like before running back in the last class, that was always the position group where Ohio State was missing on some of these elite, elite kids because bulk of them are in the South and a lot of them are going to the SEC. Um, and Ohio State finally hit on a couple of those and, and they're hitting from, from unique places like Vegas and Idaho and, and uh, mm-hmm. all over the place in the West. And that's the, the and, and a couple of, of guys here right here in Ohio. And now you have the anchoring of what looks to be a, a pretty nasty line. Uh, and that will give a chance for Ohio State to build up some depth um, at defensive end, which is maybe not quite as elite as they would like it to be this year. Yeah, I, uh, I, I've been very impressed with not only Haskell Garrett, but as you mentioned from Idaho, Tommy Togi, I, I, I was I, I think everyone kind of assumed that he would eventually get there. But the game he had against Penn State was far exceeding the expectations that I had for him, at least this early. You know that there's going to be some time for them to mesh. But if uh, if they can play this well this early and then you really have the next month and a half off in terms of real competition, um, I, I have high expectations for what they can look like uh, come postseason time. I, I, I mean, hey, I don't want let's not let's not entirely say that because they are going to play Fair. Indiana. That's true. Yeah, but, yeah. but but yeah, they, they, they should be very comfortably favored. The next month. Yeah, I think it was the ESPN power rankings, whatever, FPI or whatever they showed that Ohio State was favored by 90 to be a 90 percent win percentage in every game except for Michigan. And that was 88 percent, which I shocked that Michigan was that high after they lost to uh, to Michigan State this weekend. But, uh, you know, I guess there's a little bit thrown in for the rivalry or just the reputation of Michigan. But that's another story for another day. But one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you specifically is because of your work on extra points and how you kind of break down the inner workings of athletic departments, especially with how they relate to college football. And over the last couple of weeks, as the Big Ten has gotten into their season, we have started to see that their foolproof can't miss COVID reaction plan has not been as foolproof as we might have wanted to think with the daily tests. We've seen uh, Wisconsin go up to 22 
coaches and players uh, that have tested positive. Then we saw uh, a, a smaller outbreak happen with Illinois. Um, when you look at how the Big Ten has structured their response to COVID, both in terms of the testing and then the scheduling, and compare it to what the other conference departments have done, do you think that they are setting themselves up for some issues because of how close they've put that season together? Do you think that this was the only way it would happen? I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what the Big Ten has done to try to get this season actually to happen on the field. Yeah, it, it, it's tough to answer answer these in part because what plans an athletic department creates on some level really don't matter because they're dictated entirely by by outside events. Like what we're seeing right now is that one of the biggest COVID hotspots in the entire world is Wisconsin. Um, we've seen an explosion in positivity rates uh, in in North Dakota and Minnesota and Iowa and all some of these, these other places here. So like you can create a, a strong plan to limit outside exposure and you can test all of the time, but testing isn't treatment. Testing isn't a vaccine. And if community outbreak is high, people on your football team are going to get COVID. Um, and, yeah. and the, the, the thing that separates the big 10, I think is that as a, the leaders of these institutions are more risk adverse than their, than their power five peers. And, and whether you think that's a good policy or not, I think depends on, uh, what you think, how risky you think it is if a college athlete gets COVID or, or how risky it is for a college population. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but I, I, I believe I, ha- I have a, lo- a smaller tolerance for risk in that department than maybe yeah. somebody affiliated with Mississippi State's football program. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And I, I feel bad. I retweeted one of your tweets about I think it was about Trevor Lawrence this past week from the land grant Holy land account and people started coming with that stuff. So I apologize for doing that to you, but I feel like you and I, you and I are in the same boat in terms of, I'm just naturally a risk averse person. Um, so I understand your thoughts on that. Yeah. We, there, uh, we don't know a lot of these things. Now I, I, I will say this, if you are going to try to do a football season and to be totally honest, I actually think the big 10 made a pretty defensible decision to decide we're not going to do football. Then for a lot of reasons, they decided to get back into it. If you're going to try to play eight, eight consecutive weeks, no bye weeks heading into flu season, heading into COVID cases, you know, skyrocketing even more in this footprint. Um, I think that's stupid. <laughs> you're, you're, you're going to set yourself up here for a failure. So now it's Wisconsin. I feel pretty confident that they're not going to be the only team this Big Ten season that's going to have to miss some time. And what we're looking at Northwestern and Iowa and some of these other schools, they're still you know, keeping 15, 16 guys out. And part of me looks at this and goes, well, this sucks because, like, how, how, how football is this? Um, how do we, we make financial or you know, political or other decisions based on this football season, given that like the results are have this gigantic asterisk on them? Like all you can do is hope that the athletes and the programs and the communities are disciplined enough and that coaches and athletic departments are going to be vigilant and administering these tests, even if they are aware that it could make it more difficult for them to play football. If they do those things and yeah. they play football, great. If we do those things, we don't play football. Well, society's on fire. That, that that's that's what, that's what you're going to get here. Like it's 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 really hard for me to to go here and, and look at you know this league screwed up or this league did some you know did the right thing or the wrong thing here when it's or really it, it all depends on the virus, you know. 
Yeah. This is not necessarily something that I thought I was going to ask, but um, we saw the success of a lot of pro leagues do some version of bubbles. What was the NWSL was the first one, did their entire tournament with no positive tests. The NBA and the NHL both had very successful post, you know, part post regular season for the NBA, but post seasons for both of them. At first, when, you know, before we kind of got this, as we were in the middle of the summer, I said, there's really no way you can do a bubble for college athletes. It's not fair to expect these these players who are not paid to do that. It's, you know, it's also going to make it very difficult for them to do um, to do schooling, although most of them are probably doing online schooling. Anyway, I thought there was really no way to do that. But do you think it's actually possible for a college? I don't think they're, they're obviously not going to do it now. They talked about doing some bubble type things for basketball down down here at Disney near where I live. Yeah. But I mean, do you think that there's any way that that could actually make not just financial sense, but like moral sense to do a bubble for college athletes? I mean... I mean, if you had asked me that question three months ago, I would have said, of course not. Yeah, same. Yeah. But one thing that I honestly didn't properly appreciate is how flexible some of these athletic departments were willing to be with their own moral convictions and what they're willing to put up with to make sure that there's an athletic season. That happens. Yeah. And um, it's it's honestly probably more important across all of Division One to have a basketball season than it is a football season. Um, because that's the, that's what, where the NCAA actually makes money. They don't, the NCAA doesn't make money from college football. And um, outside of the Power Five, if you're not selling tickets, a lot of these schools aren't making a whole lot of money from football. So, mm-hmm. so ba- basketball then becomes critical to make sure that they, we, we, they have an NCAA tournament. So um, whatever they have to do, I think they're going to try it. Now, if you try to force athletes into a bubble and you try to force them to accept things that professional athletes only do because they have collective bargaining, you run the risk of an athlete strike, which has been something that, that could have happened and came close to happening a couple of times during the NCAA tournament. Mm-hmm. And we saw that a little bit this summer, but it's also very hard to organize college athletes when they are young and they are transient and they don't have access to organization tool and representation tools that the other workers have. So I, I know people are kicking that idea around and, and maybe that happens for some of these conference games. Do I feel good about it? No. Um, I don't feel good about a lot of the things I'm watching right now, but you know, money typically wins and the money says we've got to find a way to, to somehow have a college athletic season. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just me rationalizing, but you know, I, I do th- have the thought in my head, like, like you, I thought it was not something there was any possible way that could be done. I thought it would be a terrible idea. It would be awful for these players, but the more I think about it and, and the closer it got to the football season. And now as we're getting to basketball season, I think, well, they're actually probably safer in a bubble. Um, and again, I don't know if that's just a rationalization or me trying to give myself permission to get excited about that kind of option. But I do think there are arguments that how that is better than letting players be on campus and then letting them go to the grocery store or go to restaurants to get food or, you know, have the opportunity to be tempted to go to a house party or something like that just seems like that's a recipe for disaster. And if you put them in a bubble of some sort, there might be some moral issues there, um, but they're probably safer if they're going to end up playing anyway. You know, maybe um, I, I, I think if we're being honest, college football players right now live in a pretty close to a yeah, bubble fair. situation, especially because, a lot of these college campuses don't have regular students on them right now. And we're still seeing outbreaks happen. Um, that's going to happen from travel. It's going to, it's going to happen from, from moving around campus. And Hey, even if you have a relatively isolated campus, 
if you're getting a 15% positivity rate in that town from the townies, like someone's going to catch COVID. <laughs> like you can't, yeah. you can't be completely removed. Um, what, what I'll just say this, like, I'm, I'm not going to say or criticize anybody for getting excited about college athletics. I am, I, I still write yeah. about them. Um, it is very difficult in my opinion to be a completely ethical consumer and in, in, in capitalism, like most things you like are probably problematic. Um, that, that doesn't mean that <laughs> life that is problematic. We, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is right now. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that we should try to, we, that we shouldn't endeavor to make this as just and as safe as possible. Um, but I mean, that's, that, 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 that's, that, that's kind of where I am. I'm, I'm not honestly sure if it'll be safer or not. I, I know it would, it would make people more money. Um, yeah. but uh, maybe it is, maybe it is. I really don't know. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the Deal. deal. Listen to the deal. Listen to the deal on Spotify. One of the things that came up with this whole uh, the kind of the first outbreak in the Big Ten with Wisconsin, uh, I guess unilaterally can, can uh, canceling their game against Nebraska and then eventually meeting the threshold for a Big Ten game to be canceled was the fact that Nebraska tried to on its own schedule a game against Chattanooga, which is an FCS team. And they actually started the process of everybody being tested starting on Wednesday. And then eventually, uh, I think it was actually on Thursday, the Big Ten came down and and squashed that. From an organizational standpoint, can you just give like the nuts and bolts about how crazy complicated it would be to schedule a college football game three days before it actually happened? Well, to be honest with you, it's it's surprisingly not that complicated. Like really? one one of the things that's that I hope sticks with college athletics after the this pandemic is that there's no reason to schedule football games 20 years in advance. Like <laughs> we've all been like lying to ourselves and saying that that's that's a mission critical thing. It's not. Like you you could do it in a month. Um, the issue here on the Big Ten side is that the entire reason that the league was adamant about only playing conference games was to try and limit exposure variables. And that way you can ensure that every single school is testing and reporting exactly the same way and that you have a little bit more control over each institution's environment. And that's not just a a hyper-conservative or hyper-risk-adverse Big Ten president thing. You know, other leagues made that same decision. I I think it it was the SEC. That, that said that said the same thing like we're not we're, we're going conference only the pac 12 is going conference only 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 two power leagues played out of conference games and even then they limited them to you know like one right so it's not a shock that the rest of the league including officials from Iowa and Ohio State said no you can't do this that defeats the entire point and Nebraska isn't even really doing it for money because they're, they can't sell any tickets which is something that Nebraska wants right. to do so part of me thinks that this whole thing is kind of a stunt and it, it, it speaks to an, an increasing and significant cultural disconnect between not just Nebraska's coach and athletic director and university president, but 
um, the the uh, the regents at the University of Nebraska and the various stakeholders for that university in, as to what what does football mean for our institution and what what kind how um, congenial can we expect to be in in other um, you know conference meetings and and, and and other organizations right like I know Nebraska friends are frustrated about <clears throat> how they feel they've been treated in this league. And they felt that the same way about the Big 12 when they left. And I, I have you seen Justified, right? The TV show? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, there's, there's the there's famous, you know, quote from, from Raylan Gibbons where he's talking to this, this convict he picks up. And he's like, listen, if you know, if, if, if you go around one day and you meet an asshole, you met an asshole. If you go around all day and you meet nothing but assholes, you're the asshole. Nebraska, <laughs> you're the asshole, right? Like, because you've been going around for the last 20 years thinking everybody else is out to get you. The problem is you, my dude. So what does that potentially lead to? If we extrapolate the idea that Nebraska is the asshole and they're always upset about no matter where they are, is the relationship with the rest of the Big Ten institutions completely soured at this point? Or is it on the path to being completely soured? I mean, is there a chance that Nebraska tries to get back to the Big 12 or goes independent? I mean, what do you think is the natural conclusion of what's happened during this season slash offseason? Yeah, it's a good question, and um, this, I'm recording this here on a Sunday night. I'm writing about this along with some other conference realignment updates at the FCS level in my newsletter, Extra Points, which you'll be able to to, to read. Um, I think this is a, honestly a conversation that should be had openly and candidly among the, the conference's university presidents about, okay, it, clearly this this rubbed you the wrong way culturally in, in a lot of different uh, you know ways here. This isn't how we do things in the Big Ten. We are not used to, to trying to litigate conference decisions via press conference. That's some Big 12 stuff. And that, that's not going to lead to a productive and happy relationship. So here's the thing, though. If you're in Nebraska, hypothetically, you go back to the Big 12. One, you're going to be out $15 million a year minimum um, mm -hmm. over the next five, six years. Because when you go back to the Big 12, you're not going to be, a, a, it's going to take you a few years to get a full media share again. And your next cable deal is going to be substantially less money than whatever the Big 10 does. So you have to price that in. Are you okay eating that revenue hit? Then you have to realize, well, why did you want to leave the Big 12 in the first place? Well, it's because you felt like Texas and to a lesser extent, Oklahoma dominated the league culturally and, and financially and economically and got whatever they wanted. Well, that's not changing. <laughs> if anything, it's going to be worse because AM's not there and it's not 1998 and you're not as impressive of an institution anymore. Um, they're still going to have the Longhorn Network. They're still going to be able to, 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 to yield more, more, uh, more influence. And so are you willing to go back to that again? Maybe not. Or, or are you just setting yourself up for another fight? And then there's, not, there's literally nothing else left. Like theoretically, sure, you could go independent. But that's going to mean that you're going to have to put some of your games on on streaming. And Nebraska is one of the worst states in the country for broad you know, broadband internet access. Hmm. What we see already with Iowa and West Virginia when they have the Big Twelve Plus and some are on ESPN Plus, and there it, it led to literal congressional like you know, angry senators you know talking about it. It, it. it became a huge issue, and a lot of people in that state couldn't watch the game. Are you okay doing that and parking basketball in like the Summit League? Um, or, or you know, being homeless and for a lot of your other sports, like clearly not. You don't have any other options because it's not the mid '90s, and you're not as powerful or influential as a program. So, I, I honestly, I, I think it would, it would be beneficial to everybody if you got into a room and said, "We need to have a come to Jesus moment." 
right? This is how it's going to be. And you are charitably the fourth or fifth biggest program in this conference. And you're going to be treated like that. And if that's not acceptable to you, that's cool. But there's no, there's, there's, there's nothing else out there. It's a cold, dark, angry world. And Nebraska, I think, needs to determine whether uh, they're, they, they want to, you know, have the, the, the privilege of being able to, to you know, flip off the world and do, do your own thing, which is great if you're OK and making a lot less money um, or shutting up <laughs> and functioning as a Big Ten institution. <laughs> you know, and I kind of pissed off a lot of the land grant followers on Twitter when the whole thing had gone down because I kind of took up a little bit for new Big Ten commissioner Kevin Warren and reminded them that. While the commissioner does advocate for certain positions, it's ultimately the president's decision on how things are handled in the Big Ten. But I wonder both, you know, kind of going back to this whole idea of Nebraska pumping its chest and flipping off the conference. Do you think that happens if Jim Delaney is still the commissioner of the Big Ten? No, Jim, Jim Delaney would, would have had a phone call with Bill Moose and a phone call with, with a couple of regions in Nebraska. Yeah, and we'd have made it very clear. He would have used a couple of, of words that I probably shouldn't say on a family podcast. Um, and, 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 you know, it's our way or the highway. And you knew what this was when, when you signed up. And that's, you know, not just because Kevin Warren works differently, but also, you know, half the Big Ten is run right now by presidents who have been there for less than a year. There's yeah. been a little bit of a leadership vacuum. So when you have a leadership vacuum at the conference head, at the institutional level, and a hyper, hyper politicized environment, and a football coach that I think has more political and cultural capital at Nebraska than the last couple of coaches have had, that's where you run run into these issues. Um, and it's possible that everybody kisses and makes up and has and has a decent marriage the next couple of next couple of decades but it's going to require some things to change and and candidly from the conversations that i've been having around the league in the unlikely event nebraska decided to leave most people wouldn't miss them but I'm, I'm not talking about fans i'm talking about people who work at the big 10 or people who work at big 10 institutions because wow. the athletic program that the league thought they were getting has not been what's actually happened uh, man, it, it makes this soap opera drama part of it very interesting uh, to see how Nebraska reacts. And heaven forbid they have another game canceled because another school uh, has some sort of outbreak and they don't. I it, People could be very upset, which would be kind of entertaining if I'm telling the truth. But um, I want to yeah. get you out on this question, though, Matt. What is the bigger travesty? In college football, the officiating in last December's Fiesta Bowl or the refs not allowing the greatest play in the history of college football <laughs> to stand in the Rutgers, Indiana game on Saturday afternoon. Um, that, re that really was a work of art. It was the greatest I, thing I've ever seen. I fundamentally agree to the principle that I don't care what the rule book says. Uh, if a play is awesome enough and it's like within the margin of error, you should let it stand on account of it being super cool. But would that game have changed the outcome? No. Um, was it awesome? Yes. <laughs> we're, this isn't the Pentagon Papers here, man. We're, we're all entertainment reporters. This, this, this is a uh, this is supposed to be entertainment. It's supposed to be fun. If somebody makes an absolutely sick catch and their toe doesn't totally drag, but it was an amazing catch, count it. If, if, if there's a little bit of forward progress on a 13 lateral play, including something that like some 360 pound offensive lineman just chucked <laughs> blind over his head, count it. Like the real officiating travesties are things that are not fun. Uh, like, yeah. like we saw with the Fiesta Bowl where you're just getting the rules wrong. Um, 
I I'm I'm always in favor of uh, let's 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 support the the dumb interesting thing. I would be fine if the refs had like some sort of flexibility on coolness points. Like, yeah. yes, it was a technically a forward pass, but it was only forward by one yard. But there were four coolness points to the play, so that overrides the one yard forward pass. Like, I am totally down with uh, actually writing that into the rules. Yep, I'm into it. All right. Well, Matt, thank you as always. We, of course, will have not only your social media links, but also a link that people can subscribe to, honestly, the the best college football uh, newsletter out there, Extra Points. We will have all of that in the show notes and in the article version of this podcast at LandGrantHolyLand.com. It is always great to have you back uh, in the Land Grant Holy Land podcast feed. I don't know if you were the first person to ever host a show uh, or one of the first people in this podcast feed, but uh, we are all still trying to live up to the greatness that you and Luke started for all of us. So I appreciate you coming back and gracing us with your presence. It's, it, is, it is always my pleasure. I, it's always did this, this. This this is my home. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see good things happening here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Land Grant Holy Land in conversation. Also, thanks, of course, to Matt Brown. You can follow him on Twitter at MattBrownEP, and you can subscribe to Extra Points at extrapoints.substack.com. If you're finding this episode on Land Grant Holy Land, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We are releasing a podcast episode every single day of the college football season with vastly different focuses and perspectives. There is simply no feed like ours for better or for worse, in the Ohio State podcasting universe. Also, don't forget to follow Land Grant Holy Land on Twitter at LandGrant33. You can follow me at BWW Matt. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. And as always, go Bucks.